Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Roads and, and destinations here in the Panhandle are different than any other place I've lived before. It might be because of the, the, just the straight grid lines of our street here that make it so easy to say, go down here, turn left, go down there, turn right. There's, there's no curves, there's no windy roads, there's no forest, there's no trees, there's no things inhibiting your view. If you tell someone from one end of town how to get somewhere on the other end of town, you can almost point and just say, over there, and then you can see it. In other places I've lived, there are curves and windy roads and forests and uh, Gastonia, where I'm from, if you can get through the kudzu and all the other trees and things around you, there's curves and everything else, and there's all sorts of things that go into giving people directions and instructions on where to go. I was reminded of a story um, from our dating years, mine and Jessica's dating years, very early on dating. I don't know, I remember it was the fall because we were going out to a pumpkin patch and we were here in, in Nashville, but it was outside of Nashville, out in the country somewhere. And of course I picked her up, she was in the car and we were going out to this pumpkin patch to go paint pumpkins and, and do whatever it was just to be together. And we were on these winding roads, winding, turning, pavement turned to dirt. And I could sense with each passing minute that Jessica was becoming more and more nervous about where we were going and what we were doing. Years later, now that I have a fascination with shows like Forensic Files and so on, I can tell you why she was nervous. What is this guy going to do to me? Why are we going so far into the country? She did not know me enough to trust me that completely. And there were understandable questions. And I remember towards the end of the trip, thankfully we're almost to the destination, she said, now where are we going? And I was able to tell her where we're going. I assure you we're going to the pumpkin patch, and we did. We had a wonderful time. Those are lessons we must learn as we learn to trust people, as we get to know people. She was not quite there yet, and the Hebrews, as we see today, are not quite there yet with God. You think that with all they've seen and with all that God has done for them, they would be there at this point, but they have not come to that point of trust and knowledge of who God is and what God can do yet. It seems like they would be there by this point, but they haven't fully learned, and the question is, would they ever fully learn? Maybe before we're too hard on them, we would ask ourselves, have we fully learned that? Have you fully learned that? How long have you known the Lord? And his provision and his care and his faithfulness and his grace for you and for your family. And sometimes we just need to pause and to remember what God has already done. And in those moments of question and doubt and distrust and unbelief, we just need to stop to stand still and see. Look with me at Exodus chapter 13 beginning in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had, had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. When they moved on from Sukkot and landed and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from before the people. As we begin this last journey of the actual exodus from Egypt before we get into the wilderness and all the stuff that will ensue from there, we see that Moses, by the Lord's direction, first takes the people, number one today, through the wilderness. Through the wilderness. And maybe you're singing a Madonna song in your head right now. We're not talking about uh, Madonna this morning. That's the first thing that came to my mind, unfortunately. Through the wilderness, chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. I want you to notice in verse 17 as we began today that while God could have taken the people through the nearest, fastest, most direct route, he avoided that route. In fact, it says in verse 17, we let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Although that was near, it was quick, it was fast, it might have been the most direct, God says, no, we're not going that way. Instead, where does it say in verse 18 that he leads them? He leads the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now, if you're sitting around plotting out the map for the people of Israel to take this throng of people, weak, enslaved people, maybe going through the wilderness would not be the one that matches the most logical human conclusion because it wasn't the most direct, easiest, quickest, fastest route. Putting children to bed at night, my mind often goes to the quickest, fastest, most direct route to get them from point A to point B. To the extent that often Jessica says, did Anna take her medicine? I say no. Did Anna use the potty? Did Lily use the potty? I say no. Why? Because I was point A to point B. The most direct route to bed and to sleep. It's what we do when we plan out trips on our GPS or whatever system you use to get from here to there. You want the fastest, most direct route. Often our number one priority traveling anywhere. But is it so with God? The answer is clearly not always. God clearly knows the quickest, fastest, most direct route to a location. Here he decidedly chooses to do the opposite. And the question we must ask ourselves is, what if we knew what God knew? Because there in verse 17, we see an important detail. Although it was the quickest, fastest, most direct route, it was through the land, verse 17 says, of the Philistines. And God says, these people are not ready for war. 
They left Egypt equipped for battle, and one day they might be ready for battle, and we know one day they will fight when we come to the conquest in the book of Judges that we went through a few summers ago. We see that they get there, but even there, were they quite ready? Numbers 14, verse 4, when they go in to spy out the land of Canaan, you remember the report that comes back? On the verge of the promised land, on the verge of the conquest, it seems they're still not ready because many do not believe they can do it. And they say, get for us leaders to what? Take us back to Egypt. At the last leg of the journey, they're still ready to go back to Egypt. And so God says here at the beginning of the journey, they are certainly not ready for that. So knowing what God knows, the Philistines are there. The people are not ready. We're going to go another way. If I can quote Garth Brooks and Madonna both in the first point of my sermon, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. I thought he was going to fill it in for me and start singing over here. <laughs> yeah, I thank God for pastor's name. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Not that God doesn't answer prayers, you know, yes, no, maybe, sometimes, later, he does answer them, but the intent of that is that sometimes what I want, what I think, what I ask for, what I request is not what God wants or what God wills. And we should remember in those times that what God knows and what God wills is ultimately best. He knows the way, he knows the obstacles. He knows the enemies. He knows the lessons he wants to teach us. He knows the end goal, and we should trust him. One of my commentaries said that the shortest way isn't always the best way. God's way is always the best way. We can pray for God to open doors. And here's what I've done in different seasons of my life, choosing a path for ministry or a church. You know, interviewing Dumas, I said, God, you've opened the door here, it seems. And I asked God during those times, if this is not your will, shut the door. So often we're asking for open doors. Maybe sometimes we should ask for God to shut them. If this is not your will, if this is not your plan, make it unmistakably clear to me. So we pray for God to open doors, pray for him to shut doors. Didn't he do that for the apostle Paul? Unless he wanted to go to Asia, God said no. He wanted to go to Bithynia, God said no. And God was steering Paul and that leg of his missionary journey to Macedonia. And there wouldn't have been the Thessalonian church and Timothy and all these wonderful stories and churches that were planted in Paul's missionary journeys if not for those shut doors. About Jesus in the garden, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And God shut a door, very clearly opening the door to the cross. And the people here in the wilderness might have been a little confused. Why wouldn't we go the fastest route? Why wouldn't we go this way? Maybe you're a little confused this morning. And there's more that doesn't make sense here. We're going to see where it's leading in a moment, but there's more that doesn't make sense. In verse 18, not only is God taking them through the wilderness, but it says in verse 18, toward the Red Sea. Not only are we not on the fastest route, or the most direct route, we're on a direct route to the sea. Did Moses know this in the moment? I don't know. Did the people know it in the moment? I don't know. But it doesn't make the most sense. Even looking back on it as Moses is writing it, maybe he's realizing 
oh, I see what God was thinking now. But in that moment, weren't there better options? Couldn't we avoid the Philistines another way? Couldn't we get there another way? But this is God's way. In verses 19 through 22, we see these signs of faithfulness up front here, knowing that there are questions, knowing that there might be some trust issues. God reminds them in verse 19, as Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, and we might think, well, that's an odd thing to do. But back in Genesis chapter 20, or Genesis chapter 50, Joseph had prophesied this very thing. When he asked Israel, says in verse 19 here, solemnly, God will surely visit you and shall carry you up with my bones from here. Way back in Genesis, in the story of Joseph, centuries before this moment, God made a promise to Joseph, and Joseph made this prophetic promise to his sons. And here it is, centuries later, coming to pass, as Moses says, Oh yes, get the bones of Joseph, and we will take his bones with us. God's faithfulness to his promise. And in verses 21 through 22, we see God leading the people out by day and by night with this pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God's promise and God's presence. That as the people were going, even through the wilderness and even toward the sea, they were assured that the promises that God made their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, he will keep. Because he is faithful, he is sovereign, and he is almighty. They have this assurance up front. They were assured up front that even though their path brought them through a wilderness and eventually to the sea, God's presence and power was with them day and night. Never a moment when the cloud or the fire, God's presence was not leading them. And you can know that same thing today. If you are in Christ, by the Spirit of God, living within you as a child of God, you can know that promise today. God made the promise later in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, as they're on the verge of the promised land again. Moses reminds them that they devoted the people of that area to destruction And he did so. That's not even the right verse. I put the wrong verse in there for you guys. Sorry. God promises his people in Deuteronomy chapter 31 that he will be with them and he will not forsake them. A promise that is picked up on in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 when the author quoting that promise in Deuteronomy chapter 31 31, verse 6 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, when he was about to ascend and giving the commission to his disciples, made a similar promise in Matthew 28, 20. He said, Lo, behold, now I am with you even until the end of the age. God, by his spirit, has promised his presence and his power for us. And we as believers have something better than a fiery pillar or a cloudy pillar. As awesome as that would be, And as sensational as that might appear to us, we have something better than that in the Spirit of God within us. Not just appearing in the wilderness or on top of a mountain somewhere, and not even the tongues of fire that set on the disciples in the upper room. We have the Spirit of God in our very hearts. To know that whether it be a wilderness or a sea, the good, the bad, suffering and death, We can, as Proverbs 3 tells us, trust in the Lord 
with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he shall what? Direct your paths. We can pray and we can seek and we can ask boldly from God. But then we can also stand still and trust his hand and his guidance and his direction and his spirit every step of the way. I don't know if you're familiar with Pastor Timothy Keller, Tim Keller at all, but remarkable pastor and theologian in New York City, an evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christian, Presbyterian pastor, suffering with cancer at this very moment. He said this recently on a tweet. If we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. If we knew what God knows, then when we prayed, we would ask exactly for what God gives. God knows the way. God knows the obstacles. God knows the enemies. God knows the lessons and God knows the goal. And we can trust him even if it be through a wilderness. And as if to make matters worse, we, ch- we come to chapter 14, through the wilderness, and now to the sea. We're already on a slower, more difficult route from the wilderness to the sea. But not even this is an accident because God has a plan and a purpose in it all. Look at chapter 14, down in verse 3. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Do you see what's going on here? I thought we were past all this. Nine plagues and then the angel of death and the striking of the firstborn. And Pharaoh said, finally, just go and, and get out all of you. But now... God says he will change his mind. But again, verse 4 reminds us that this is not just the will of Pharaoh. But this is the sovereign hand of God in verse 5, verse 4, sorry. that says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now we might ask God, God, when, when is it enough? You've hardened Pharaoh's heart and hardened Pharaoh's heart nine times, ten times. And now God says just... Just one more time, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and cause him to come after you. Why? He says, verse 4, so I will get glory from him. And he will know and you will know once and for all that I am the Lord. And in verse 5, that's exactly what begins to happen. When the king of Egypt was told that people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. I love the language there. Was changed. They changed it for evil, yes, but God was changing it and hardening it for his purposes. And his mind was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? That we've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. 600 chosen chariots he takes with him. Look down at verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. 
So Pharaoh begins to regret letting them go as God is hardening their heart. And in verse 8, it says that he pursued. He chased down the people of Israel. Verses 6 and 7 says, with 600 choice chariots, probably many more, and many more chosen warriors to go after the people. And understandably so, in verse 10, the people cry out for terror to Moses. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Understandably, right? What's going on, Moses? We just saw all that God did. That was fine and good. But this is here and this is now. We've come through the wilderness. Now we're at the sea. And behind us is the hostile Egyptian army. Verse 11, they say to Moses, Is this because there are no graves in Egypt that you have brought us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? In verse 12, they ask, Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Moses, is this why you brought us out here? Sarcastically, they ask, Were there no graves in Egypt? We just die there, at least in comfort, rather than in the middle of nowhere. Now you've brought us out here to what? To die. Didn't we tell you in the beginning, Moses? Chapters 5 and 6, Pastor Matt preached to us about the taking away of the straw for the bricks and they doubled their workload. Didn't we tell you then, Moses, okay, that's enough. Just leave us alone. Now, we know the story. We know our Bible story. We know how this ends. And maybe we're asking them at this moment, can't you just wait? Don't you believe? Don't you know what's about to happen, Israelites? But how often we think the very same things. Already in the wilderness and now brought to the sea. How many of you have said this? Having gone through a season of difficulty. Having gone through a season of suffering. Maybe intense suffering. And it seems like it's just about to let up. And then that one more thing happens. And you say, of course this would happen. Of course, now this. God... My request made more sense than this. My plan made more sense than this. God, my will be done. God begins to command the people in this moment of doubt, in this moment of understandable questioning. Look at what he says in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. For the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God is going to fight for you. You simply need to be still and to be quiet. This is not your fight This is not your war. This is God's fight. This is God's battle. And because it's his fight and his battle, it will be his victory. And it will be his triumph. And it will be his glory. In fact, Moses goes as far as to say, you've seen the Egyptians today. Most of the commentators I read say it should say something like, because you see the Egyptians today. 
you will see them no more. Now that changes the whole thing, doesn't it? It's not just you see them now, you won't see them again. But it's as if Moses is telling the people to rejoice that they're coming after you. Because the fact that you've seen them today in this setting means that you will see them no more. That's a hard suggestion, isn't it? With a seat to your back and a hostile army in front of you to rejoice. You see them coming, but they will soon be no more. Rejoice in that. Yet Paul tells us in Philippians 4.4 to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice, to rejoice, to rejoice in suffering, in sickness, in trials, in hard times. Them in the middle of a wilderness in front of a sea with a hostile army. Rejoice. Maybe you with your difficulty, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional or otherwise, you or someone you love and that God says rejoice. In the face of these trials, in the face of this suffering, and your enemies, and all the evil that is around us, and even in the face of Satan himself, rejoice, God. And he says, yes, because there is coming a time when you will see them no more. Rejoice to see them now, because it means their end is coming, and you will never face them again. That sounds great, doesn't it? But the promise, the strategy is a little, still a little unclear. With an army marching forward, the command comes, be quiet and be still. Number three today, because God is going to take them through the sea. I wonder today if you've ever been in that place. You know what place I'm talking about. When all seems lost, when it just seems to be confusion, when you seem trapped. And tell me that you haven't experienced this suddenly. It seems out of nowhere and against all odds, there's a light. There's a light at the end of it. There's footing There's a pathway. There's direction. Maybe even you would say that was miraculous. Now Israel is about to experience that in a very real, tangible, physical way. And in a way that will last from generation to generation in a definition of who they are. It will be a sign that is echoed time and time again through their history and even into the New Testament. But even still, we have this odd strategy Be still, be quiet. And then, immediately after saying that, verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. God says, why are you stopping and praying and crying out to me in terror? Keep moving. Can't you see the sea in front of us, God? Just exactly which way are we supposed to keep moving? Toward the army coming after us or into the ocean behind us? Are you going to make for us, God, some miraculous boats that are going to appear? A miraculous bridge over the sea? Are you going to teleport us over to the other side? Verse 16, God says, no. To Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. 
that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And after you go, verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians again so that they shall go in after them. Why? So that I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And one more time, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You see, sometimes God's voice and his command is just that. Keep going. Head up. Eyes forward. Keep moving. Talk to many of you when we pray through the prayer list your needs and your obstacles and the challenges you face are ever-present there in your family, in your life, in your mind, in your spirit. And perhaps God is saying to you from his word, by his spirit, head up, eyes forward, just keep moving. But God, I thought you said to stand still. <laughs> and now you say keep moving. Stand still as if to say, this is not your war to fight. You keep trusting. You keep walking. You keep moving while God fights the battles. You deal with the stuff that is right in front of you right now. Obey, walk, and go, and leave the rest to God. Because he is the one that's going before you. Chapter 13, verse 21 told us that. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, leading them day and night, 24-7, right there. And now we see, beginning in verse 19, not only does he go before us, but he guards behind us. In verse 19, the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near to the other all night. Here we see the angel of the Lord, this messenger of the Lord, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, moving from this leading, guiding position to a defensive position, moving from before the Israelites to behind them. And he is there day and night. And just as this angel has guided them and protected them day and night, leading them, he now protects them behind them. As Moses steps forward in verse 21 and obeys God's command. Verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind all night. And made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and a wall on their left. Can you see this picture? Then Moses steps forward, lifts up the staff that God told him to use from the beginning. And as he does, the wind of God begins to blow and the sea begins to divide as a wall on their left and their right. What a picture. 
Any number of documentaries will come out and say, well, it should have been actually the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea. That's just nonsense because nowhere else in the Bible is the Red Sea called anything else but the Red Sea. And no matter what word you use, the Red Sea is always used by the same word. So it cannot be translated to mean something less than what it was, the Red Sea. And some will say, well, it was just a strong wind. That maybe from all the natural occurrences that happened in Egypt with all the so-called plagues, there's this strong wind that comes and blows the water. It was a shallow sea of reeds after all. It just kind of blows it out of the way they go through. Or maybe, as I've heard before, there was a volcano that erupted out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea that caused all the water to recede for a while and let them go forward. Whatever natural quote-unquote scientific explanation we want to attach to things, the text dispels all of it. Because it's not just that the waters recede by some natural occurrence or that there's some wind blows and the water is just simply pushed back. What does it say? That the wall is divided, the, the waters are divided as a wall on their left and their right. Whatever the means and whatever the mechanisms There was a wall created of water on the left and the right, a supernatural, miraculous act of God. You see this mass of people descending into what was the shore of the Red Sea that has now become a highway of deliverance through the waters. The God who had made the waters of Egypt turn to blood who had brought the frogs and the gnats and the flies and killed the livestock and the boils and the hail and the locusts and the darkness, the same God that descended on Egypt and slew the firstborn all over the land, now brings his people out with a mighty strong hand, breathing, as it were, over the waters. We're reminded of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where there in the darkness over the abyss, was the spirit, the breath, the wind of God over the waters, bringing something where there was nothing. And now we see the spirit of God here hovering over the waters, the wind and the breath of God bringing something from nothing away, as we sang, where there was no way. Deliverance, salvation, and rescue, and a path forward. But maybe you're still thinking, as they surely were, looking over their shoulders perhaps the whole time, but what about the Egyptians? What about this whole army, haven't you noticed, that's marching behind us? Well, verse 23, the Egyptians do pursue them down to the sea. It says the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. It says in verse 24 through 25, In the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Verse 25, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, Israel now on the other side, stretch out your hand again over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course. 
When the morning appeared and the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. The Egyptians pursue because God had hardened their hearts. And they're trapped by God there in the middle of the sea, divided on their left and their right. And as Moses stretches out his hand one more time, all the waters return at once. And not one Egyptian soldier or chariot or horse remained. This brings us to this topic of judgment and salvation. I remember back in our journey last week through Passover that the Lord made a distinction. Beginning with the darkness and before that in the plagues, the Lord made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And the Lord made a distinction in Passover that not even a dog growled against his people. And the Lord is making distinctions here in this story today. Verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. You see the distinction? Israel crossed on dry ground. The water on the left, the water on the right. Well, what happened to the Egyptians? It said that their chariots were clogged and their wheels were stuck, presumably in the mud, in the muck of what you would imagine from a freshly drained sea. Israel crossed on dry ground. Egypt was stuck in the middle. Verse 30, it says, Israel was saved. But what happened to the Egyptians? Not one remained. And the people of Israel saw the dead Egyptians, verse 30, on the seashore. Dry ground, clogged in the muck, saved and destroyed. The same sea, the same waters, the same timing, yet two very different outcomes. The salvation of his people and the judgment of the Egyptians. And what, is the, what else is there to do in verse 31 except to see the great power of the Lord? The people feared the Lord and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So often that is exactly what's missing when we begin to doubt and grumble and to complain. That as we begin to forget what God has already done, isn't that when the murmuring and the complaining begins? Whereas they remember what God has done and it propels them to fear and reverence and worship. Listen. In your life, there will be times in the wilderness. You thought that it was going to go one way, only for God to take you another. And it might not make any sense to you. And it might not seem the right path to you. But if you belong to God in Christ, you can be assured that whatever the path and whatever the storm, whatever the wilderness, whatever the obstacle, God is in it for your good and for his glory isn't that what Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 8 verse 28 that 
all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Isn't that what Joseph reminded his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. That weapon that might have been formed to destroy you cannot prosper because God has bigger, better, more eternal plans for you. And when God brings you from the wilderness and drops you off in front of the sea, trapped in front and from behind, you should stop to remember that that same presence and that same power that has led you from then until now will never leave you nor forsake you day and night, in front and behind, all around. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And when you are tempted to think that the way is too difficult, the path too hard, the obstacles too much, remember that God has already brought you through the hardest way. God has already brought you through the most difficult pass when you passed from death to life. When you passed from judgment to salvation. In those waters, the Egyptians were drowned beneath the crushing wave of God's judgment. Unless we be too giddy about that and get too happy and cheer too quickly, we need to remember that that's just a small sample of what we all deserve because of our sin. But there was one. One who submitted himself to the raging waters of God's judgment. The one who came to John the Baptist, needing no remission of sins, needing no repentance, needing no cleansing. Yet he plunged himself into the water to identify himself with sinners. This is the same one who fell beneath the weight of his cross, suffered the lashes, suffered the crown of thorns, the nails, the agony, as wave after wave after wave of God's righteous wrath for sinners broke upon him. Why? So that in him, you and I might walk into the very holiness and presence of God, not expecting the waves of his wrath to crash upon us, but that his power and his presence might be a wall on our left and a wall on our right, in front and behind, God's power, God's presence, that just as Israel passed from one side to the other through the sea, we might know that passing from death to life, from darkness to light, from judgment to salvation. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24, if you believe in me, you have already passed from death to life. There's no way, better way to profess that faith and that passing than in baptism. Why? Well, because you're plunged into water. That just as Noah and his family, the Bible says, was saved through the water. Just as the Hebrews here were saved through the water. 
we too might be plunged into the water to show that we have passed through in Christ. Do you know that deliverance today? Have you passed from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ? And if you have, have you professed that faith by being plunged into the waters of baptism? Believer today, maybe you're at a wilderness or at the front of a sea with a hostile army behind you. You need to remember that the greatest deliverance has already been given to you in your salvation from sin. And you need to remember today that nothing is too hard for God. Lastly today, and I'm just going to read through this, chapter 15, a song of triumph. When they get to the other side, what is there to do but sing? Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Oh, the sanctuary which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And just when you thought it was over, for when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen were went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. So Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. When God's people are delivered, they sing. 
Singing is a commanded act of Christian worship because, as one of the commentators said, praise is the natural response from those who have experienced God's grace. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that as you speak to each other, speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratefulness in your heart. There's something about God's people singing together in victory and in triumph over Satan and the world as we encourage and we build up one another in that very act. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone singing behind me or beside me or in front of me, as bad as it might have been and how encouraging it was to hear that old man or that older woman or that younger person or that child Or growing up hearing my parents singing, or my wife singing next to me, or the widow behind me, or the widower to the right of me. Hearing God's people sing in triumph and joy over this world. All of that to tell you this morning that I do not know what you've been through. I don't know what you're going through, and I do not yet know what you will go through. But God this morning has already dealt the death blow to Satan and evil. And though we see them now, we will soon see them no more. And that makes me say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Interestingly, this is the song that we will sing for all eternity. Book of Revelation, chapter 15 Would you stand to your feet? We're going to read part of this together, but I want you to hear this from the book of Revelation. If you can have Brother Hal come up and whatever musicians are going to play for our response song, we're going to sing right after this. Can you imagine here at the end of time before the throne of God, having passed through not just the temporary obstacles of your life right here and right now, but with it all behind you. All suffering, all trial, all pain, every last enemy at last destroyed by the very breath of God. In the book of Revelation, we read this. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Standing beside the sea, now on the other side. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And I just want you to read verses 3 and 4 with me. As they sing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, begin reading here with great, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What will we sing at the end of it all? Except the triumph song of Moses and of the Lamb. 
now on the other side, safe at home. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Faithful, faithful, faithful. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.